Chapter 3 of An Inquiry into the Human Mind on the Principles of Common Sense. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Reynolds. An Inquiry into the Human Mind on the Principles of Common Sense by Thomas Reed. Chapter 3. Of Tasting. A great part of what hath been said of the sense of smelling is so easily applied to those of tasting and hearing, that we shall leave the application entirely to the reader's judgment, and save ourselves the trouble of a tedious repetition. It is probable that everything that affects the taste is in some degree soluble in the saliva, it is not conceivable how anything should enter readily and of its own accord, as it were, into the pores of the tongue, palate, and fauces, unless it had some chemical affinity to that liquor with which these pores are always replete. It is therefore an admirable contrivance of nature that the organs of taste should always be moist with a liquor which is so universal a menstruum, and which deserves to be examined more than it hath been hitherto both in that capacity and as a medical ungent. Nature teaches dogs and other animals to use it in this last way, and its subserviency both to taste and digestion shows its efficacy in the former. It is with manifest design and propriety that the organ of this sense guards the entrance of the alimentary canal, as that of smell, the entrance of the canal for respiration and from these organs being placed in such manner that everything that enters into the stomach must undergo the scrutiny of both senses it is plain that they were intended by nature to distinguish wholesome food from that which is noxious the brutes have no other means of choosing their food nor would mankind in the savage state and it is very probable that the smell and a taste no way vitiated by luxury or bad habits would rarely, if ever, lead us to a wrong choice of food among the production of nature, although the artificial compositions of a refined and luxurious cookery, or of chemistry and pharmacy, may often impose upon both, and produce things agreeable to the taste and smell which are noxious to health. And it is probable that both smell and taste are vitiated, and rendered less fit to perform their natural offices, by the unnatural kind of life men commonly lead in society. These senses are likewise of great use to distinguish bodies that cannot be distinguished by our other senses, and to discern the changes which the same body undergoes, which in many cases are sooner perceived by taste and smell than by any other means. How many things are there in the market, the eating-house, and the tavern, as well as in the apothecary and chemist's shops, which are known to be what they are given out to be, and are perceived to be good or bad in their kind only by taste or smell. And how far our judgment of things by means of our senses might be improved by accurate attention to the small differences of taste and smell, and other sensible qualities, is not easy to determine. Sir Isaac Newton, by a noble effort of his great genius, attempted from the color of opaque bodies to discover the magnitude of the minute pellucid parts of which they are compounded, and who knows what new lights natural philosophy may yet receive from other secondary qualities duly examined.
some tastes and smells stimulate the nerves and raise the spirits but such an artificial elevation of the spirits is by the laws of nature followed by a depression which can only be relieved by time or by the repeated use of the like stimulus by the use of such things we create an appetite for them which very much resembles and hath all the force of a natural one it is in this manner that men require an appetite for snuff tobacco strong liquors laudanum and the like nature seems studiously to have set bounds to the pleasures and pains we have by these two senses and to have confined them within very narrow limits that we might not place any part of our happiness in them there being hardly any smell or taste so disagreeable that use will not make it tolerable and at last perhaps agreeable nor any so agreeable as not to lose its relish by constant use neither is there any pleasure or pain of these senses which is not introduced or followed by some degree of its contrary which nearly balances it so that we may here apply the beautiful allegory of the divine socrates that although pleasure and pain are contrary in their nature and their faces look different ways yet jupiter hath tied them so together that he that lays hold of the one draws the other along with it as there is a great variety of smells seemingly simple and uncompounded not only altogether unlike but some of them contrary to others and as the same thing may be said of tastes it would seem that one taste is not less different from another than it is from a smell and therefore it may be a question how all smells come to be considered as one genus and all tastes of another what is the generical distinction it is only that the nose is the organ of the one and the palate of the other or abstracting from the organ is there not in the sensations themselves something common to smells and something else common to tastes whereby the one is distinguished from the other it seems most probable that the latter is the case and that under the appearance of the greatest simplicity there is still in these sensations something of composition if one considers the matter abstractly it would seem that a number of sensations or indeed of any other individual things which are perfectly simple and uncompounded are incapable of being reduced into genera and species because individuals which belong to a species must have something peculiar to each by which they are distinguished and something common to the whole species and the same may be said of species which belong to one genus and whether this does not imply some kind of composition we shall leave to metaphysicians to determine the sensations both of smell and taste do undoubtedly admit of an immense variety of modifications which no language can express if a man was to examine five hundred different wines he would hardly find two of them that had precisely the same taste the same thing holds in cheese and in many other things yet of five hundred different tastes in cheese or wine we can hardly describe twenty so as to give a distinct notion of them to one who had not tasted them dr nehemiah grew a most judicious and laborious naturalist in a discourse read before the royal society anno sixteen seventy five hath endeavoured to show that there are at least sixteen different simple tastes which he enumerates how many compound ones may be made out of all the various combinations of two three four or more of these simple ones 
they who are acquainted with the theory of combinations will easily perceive. All these have various degrees of intenseness and weakness. Many of them have other varieties. In some the taste is more quickly perceived upon the application of the sapid body, in others more slowly. In some the sensation is more permanent, in others more transient. In some it seems to undulate, or return after certain intervals, in others it is constant. The various parts of the organ as the lips, the tip of the tongue, the root of the tongue, the fauces, the uvula, and the throat, are some of them chiefly affected by one sapid body, and others by another. All these and other varieties of taste, that accurate writer illustrates by a number of examples. Nor is it to be doubted but smells, if examined with the same accuracy, would appear to have as great variety. End of chapter 3 Recording by Stephen Reynolds, Durham, Connecticut